Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. Ahoy, hello and welcome to another trip all around the universe. We will search out those secrets that no one else dares to find in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Welcome along. My name's Dan. Thank you so much for finding us, for following, for listening. This is the place where we take a tour of the galaxy and beyond to search out everything sciencey that's lurking, that might have been forgotten about nearby. We will do it all this week. We will chat to an astronomy expert, Haley Smith. She's from the National Space Academy, all about a comet that's passing by Earth on a journey that's taken 50,000 years. The colours that you see in comets are to do with the molecules that you find on comets. When the comet gets close to the sun, the um, radiation from the sun causes those carbon atoms to emit light and that light is green. Also staying in space, we'll take our own journey up there to deep space high. This week, it's all about fluids. Funnily enough, both water and wind are types of fluid. Hang on, that's got to be wrong. A fluid's like something you drink. Nope, a fluid is anything that flows when it's pushed. And I've got your questions to answer. Remember, if there's ever anything sciencey that you want sorted, you need to send it to me as a voice note at funkidslive.com. This week we'll talk about what happens to spiders when they're not alive anymore and how we know for sure that the dinosaurs were killed off by a meteor. We'll find all that out in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start things off with this week's Science in the News. A project is underway to find out what the South Pole really sounds like. Underwater microphones have been sunk beneath the ocean in Antarctica by the Helmholtz Institute for Functional Marine Biodiversity. Very catchy, but they do brilliant work. With these microphones, they found calls of the rare Antarctic seal, narwhals, humpback whales. Now, a lot of the noise is drowned out by the creaking, groaning and crashing as the Antarctic shifts and the ice falls into the ocean. It's amazing that we still know so little about what happens under the sea. We know more about what's up in space than we do about what's under our ocean. So any effort to try and find out more about the beasts that lurk near the South Pole is a brilliant idea. Also, engineers are working on a brilliant way to stop water leaks. Hundreds of thousands of water pipes across the UK are leaking every day and billions of litres of water is lost. That is terrible for the environment because it means we need to get more water which can damage the planet. So these engineers, they've developed mini little robots. They look like tiny little remote control cars and they use them to patrol the pipe networks. It checks for faults and stops leaks by patching them up. What a brilliant way to use everything that we can do right now. All of the robots, all of the AI, what a brilliant way to make small changes to try and save the world. And the NASA Perseverance rover up on Mars has finished making a rock depot up on the red planet. It's put tubes down to keep rocks in. And it's a place to keep them before they're sent back to the Earth. I love the idea of this. When you imagine a robot 
wandering around Mars, you might picture all the incredible scrapes that it's getting up to, all the mysterious work. But really, it's making a garage that it can keep its rocks in. What a brilliant idea. Can't wait to hear more about that. Let's spin the wheel then of this week's A to Z of engineering. We've been doing this for the last month or so, heading to Engineer Academy, where we learn all about different things that are made, how they're made, who makes them. It's all about engineering. We've got one for every single letter of the alphabet. We're learning everything from acoustics all the way through to, well, zoos. So let's spin the wheel with the help of Engers. He's our engineering expert to find out what letter of engineering we're learning about this week. Hello and welcome to another Engineering Academy, where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering. Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today. Over to Engers to spin the wheel. It's M, and M is for motorsport. Thanks, Engers. The pinnacle of motorsport has to be Formula One racing. With iconic teams and famous drivers competing in glamorous locations all over the world. Maybe just hearing the words Formula One gives you a sense of thrill and adventure. Some people have a knack for racing and speed excites them. But to others, the sound of engines and understanding the mechanics and the workings of the machines gives them an adrenaline rush. For them, Understanding how they work is more exciting than riding a motorcycle or driving a sports car is. Let's drive into the engineering expertise in this exciting industry. Over to you, Engers. Formula One cars are pretty speedy. They can accelerate from 0 to 60 miles an hour in under 3 seconds and clock up over 220 miles per hour. And they can do this because of their carefully engineered aerodynamics as well as powerful engines. It's also big business, with the big team spending up to $140 million per season. Before each new season, every Formula One team will analyse how their cars performed in previous seasons and identify areas that might need improving, like increasing speeds at which cars can corner, as well as meeting new safety standards. Design engineers will be tasked to come up with new ways to solve particular problems. Some might work on part of the car's suspension, whilst others might redesign electronic elements. Once a new design has been drawn up, it's time to get testing. Computer simulations are used to see how the new designs perform under the tough conditions of the track. And then real-life simulations will take place, putting the new designs through their paces in wind tunnels. Sometimes there are conflicts to be resolved, like whilst a heavy part might help reduce lift to keep the car on the tarmac, the extra weight might result in slower speeds on the straights. Engineers and other members of each team will work together to come up with solutions that get the very best results by the start of the new season. Ready to race? Wait for the chequered flag! Of course, the engineering team's work is far from over. Before, during and after every race, they will constantly analyse how their cars are performing and make additional changes if needed. And we need to remember it's not just the cars that need careful high-tech engineering solutions. Everything from the tools used by the pit crew, the communication systems used to talk to the drivers, and even the helmets they wear will all have gone through a careful design process. 
In a business where hundredths of a second can make a big difference, it's crucial that engineers think of every detail and make every element as good as it can be. Mistakes on the track or in the design could result in injury or even death. As well as the engineering team, drivers are supported by a large team, from nutritionists to mechanics who will maintain and repair the cars. The most well-known mechanics are the pit crew, who can change tyres during races in just a few seconds. Pit stops have got faster and faster over recent years, mainly because cars are no longer allowed to refuel. The fastest tyre change in 2022 was just 1.98 seconds, a record achieved by the McLaren team. As well as the pit crew, there are many other types of mechanics behind the scenes, often specialising in a particular part of the car. So if this sounds like your dream job, how would you go about getting involved? Well, for the very top Formula One teams, you would need to have a lot of experience in the industry. Starting out, it's likely you'd need an engineering degree, not necessarily in automotive or mechanical engineering, but perhaps in aeronautical and motorsport engineering. And as competition can be tough, it can help to prove you have the enthusiasm for the sport, perhaps by being involved in marshalling events. It's one of the highest profile engineering roles there is. And whilst many of the engineers are based away from the track, for some, it can be a career that takes them all over the world. Thanks, Engers. And that's our take on the letter M. It's been monumental. If you would like to check out some other types of engineering, why not check out mapping, marine, material, metrological, or municipal engineering? Engineer Academy, created with support from the Royal Academy of Engineering. If you would like to find out more about the A to Z, visit funkislive.com slash engineer. We'll catch up again with Engers, our engineering expert, and spin the wheel on the A to Z of engineering at the same time next week. What letter will it land on then? Right now, let's answer your questions then. I love this part of the show where you send anything science-y that you need solved to me. Uh, The best way is as a voice note on funkidslive.com. We've got a big button there that you can press, record your question, let us know your name, and it will come through to me. You can also drop it on the free Fun Kids app. I love investigating all of the little things that you're worried about, the, the tiny stuff, not huge problems, but tiny things that are rattling around your brain and maybe keep you up at night. You can also leave your question as a review over on Apple Podcasts. I do all the digging and the work and the research for you. That's what Marley's done. They are in Mozambique. And this is a bit, a bit, it's a bit, a bit grim. Marley wants to know why when some spiders die, do they turn upside down? Have you ever seen this? When you've seen a spider that's no longer around on the floor... It will be with its belly pointing upwards. That's what pretty much always happens. Now, it's all because of their legs, and it's quite simple, really. When a spider dies, all of its muscles shut down. So do the ones that keep their legs straight. Because the muscles aren't doing any work, the legs squeeze up. The whole spider curls into a ball. And quite simply, because their back is heavier than the rest of their body, they roll onto their back. That's really all that happens, Marley. Thank you so much for the question. This one is from Edward, who is 11, who wants to know, how do scientists know that dinosaurs became extinct by a meteor? I had so much fun 
looking up the answer to this, Edward. There is so many reasons why experts are pretty much certain that it was a meteor that killed off the dinosaurs. And just picture, all this happened millions and millions of years ago. But we know. You see, there is a line in the Earth, deep down under the ground. It's a layer called the KT boundary. Now, in that layer, deep underground, there are strangely high levels of an element called iridium. Now, it's rare to find iridium on Earth, but it's very common to find it in meteorites. And there's quite a lot of this iridium in one very specific layer of Earth deep down. And we know because of the way the Earth has been made, the lower down you get into the Earth, the further back you're travelling through time. It builds up each year, almost adding like an onion. And now buried under that layer are the fossils of the dinosaurs that we found. But you don't find them above. So that means that the dinosaurs existed before that layer of Earth. And in that layer of Earth, you find things that are in meteorites. So they've put two and two together there. I think they've made four. Also, they've worked out that that layer of Earth, the KT boundary that we were talking about, is 65 million years old. We also know that there's an enormous crater in Mexico called Chicxulub, which is likely to have been made by a meteorite impact which is also about 65 million years old. So when you add all that together, you've got the big hole in the ground that scientists think was made by a meteorite. That was 65 million years ago. You've got the layer in the Earth. That's from 65 million years ago. You find things in that Earth that you can only find in meteorites. Two and two together. That's why the dinosaurs were made extinct, we think. Thank you so much, Edward. If you want something science answered next week on the podcast, the best way, doesn't matter what it is, if it's slightly related to science, I will do the digging for you. Get out your phone or get to the website now, funkidslive.com. We've got a really easy button. Press the button, then record yourself. Let me know your name and the question that you're desperate to get answered. It really doesn't take much of your time. I love working out the questions and it makes you a proper superstar of the show. Your voice will feature, you'll star in the whole thing. So do me a favour, think of a question this week. Get to funkidslive.com and then record it so I can sort it out for you. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. Let's get on to this week's Dangerous Dan, where we're looking at a cruel, creepy crawly found in America. It's the Red Velvet Ant, which also goes by another much more brutal name, the Cow Killer. They're a fuzzy red colour with a black stripe across their middle on the abdomen, which gives them that name. It makes them look like a cow. But what's interesting, they've also got enough venom to kill a cow and they're around them quite a lot of the time. Now, they're called the red velvet ant, but they're actually wasps. The girls don't have wings, though, so it makes them look like ants. And it's the girls that cause most of the trouble. They've got an extremely painful sting. It does a lot of damage on their own. They've got venom that comes from their saliva. Also, poison from the actual venom gland just down below their back, where all wasps have them. That means you get a double dose. Now, if they feel threatened, they don't just 
use their own venom, which is extremely dangerous, very painful. They also signal the alarm pheromone, which gets the colony ready to attack. It's like a scent that fills the air that only these wasps can sniff. And they all gang up on whatever creature they're around. Their sting is extremely painful. It's even deadly to humans. And they look dangerous too. They are bright red. They are spindly. Sure signs of something that's mean. And it means that the red velvet ant, the cow killer, goes straight onto our dangerous Dan list. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, the other day, you might have heard that a green comet is on its way. The comet is called C-2022E3 brackets ZTF. And it's hurtled past Earth. It's still carrying on. It's on a journey that's taken it 50,000 years. We can find out more with Haley Smith, who is from the National Space Academy. Haley, thank you for being there. Hi, thanks for having me on. So there's a lot of things that we can find floating through space and we have a lot of different words for them. Just start us off. What is a comet? One way of thinking about what a comet is, is to think of it as like a dirty snowball. So a comet is something that is left over from the formation of the solar system and is made up of rock and dust and gas. Um, So if you're trying to imagine what a comet looks like, then dirty snowball is kind of a good way of thinking of it. A snowball that we might have would fit in the palm of our hands, though. How big do we know that some comets can get? I would imagine more than bigger than that kind of snowball. Yeah, much bigger than the kind of snowball that you might be used to throwing around in the wintertime. A a comet would be miles or tens of miles wide. So you think of it as the size of a town or the size of a small city. That would be pretty much what your average comet, if there is an average comet, what your average comet might, uh, what the size it might have. And this became... Uh, Comets should be famous anyway when we get one streaking through our sky. But this became particularly well known over the last couple of weeks because it's a green comet. What makes it green? Well, um, the colours that you see in comets are to do with the molecules that you find on comets. So what they're made of. And the green colour comes actually from carbon atoms. It comes from something called diatomic carbon, which is carbon, two carbon atoms bonded together. Um, And when the comet gets close to the sun, the um, radiation from the sun causes those carbon atoms to emit light and that light is green. And you said that the comet is made from gases and bits of rock that was left over from the very start of the whole universe. We know that this has taken, I think, 50,000 years to get here. Is that right? Just talk to us about how much we know of its journey. Where has it been? Do we know what it's orbiting? Do we know where it's going? So you're right, it has taken about 50,000 years to get back around to us from the last time it was here. So it would have been um, close to Earth 50,000 years ago when uh, in the, around the Stone Age. Um, and then it's gone back out a long way away from the sun on its orbit and swung back around again after 50,000 years. So it's orbiting the sun and it's thought to come from a place called the Oort Cloud. And the Oort Cloud is an area right at the edge of the solar system, way beyond all the planets where we think quite a lot of comets are hanging around. Well, it's amazing that this takes 50,000 years. Um, if it was for, if it, like the first, the last time it came near us would have been in the Stone Age, I can't imagine there were many cavemen with their binoculars out looking for it. How do we know that that was the last time it came close to us? Because of maths. So um, orbital mechanics are very predictable. You can... Um, 
use maths equations to predict exactly what's going to happen, exactly how long something's going to take to orbit um, and what its motion is going to be. You can predict whether something is going to, uh, I, I don't know, crash into another body, for example, like once there was a comet that um, crashed into Jupiter. So you can predict all of these things using maths. Do they have a limited life? Because if the reason that this comet is it blazes close to us makes this colour is because of the sun's radiation is almost burning some of it away, does it not get smaller and smaller and smaller on its journeys around the sun? Yes, they do. And also sometimes comets get too close to the sun and that can cause them to break up. And um, when that happens, they're called sun grazing comets. Um, and interestingly, we just talked about the, the predictability of um, orbital mechanics because of maths, but comets are notoriously unpredictable. And one of the reasons for that is because we don't know exactly how they're going to respond when they get near the sun. All this radiation from the sun comes and it, it makes them light up. They have these wonderful tails, but we don't know exactly what's going to happen, whether they will, they might suddenly break up. Um, they might end up getting close enough to the sun that that, that causes them to be pulled apart. So um, they, they don't live forever. Sometimes they spectacularly break up all of a sudden when they get close to the sun. Uh, and sometimes it's more of a gradual process of each time it comes close to the sun, it loses some of its material. Now, the brilliant thing about this podcast is that people can listen whenever they like. But if someone is listening uh, within the right time frame, if they've got to it early, is there any chance we can still see the comet? Yes. So its closest approach to Earth was on the 1st of February. So it's it's dimming now, as I talked to you. If you listen to this podcast around the time that it first goes out, um, then the comet is likely to be in the constellation of Taurus. Um, so it will be in the constellation of Taurus towards the end of this week and into next. So if you're observing around the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, maybe 14th February, then um, if you look towards the constellation of Taurus, there's a really good landmark there at the moment, which is the planet Mars. Um, and if you go outside and you're looking with your naked eye, if you look in the uh, area where Taurus is and look for something that looks like a star but appears a little bit orange, then you're probably not seeing a star. You're actually seeing the planet Mars. The thing to do if you're trying to spot this comet is to, if you have a pair of binoculars handy, is to sweep around that area with a pair of binoculars and look for a fuzzy green blob. Um, you might be able to spot it without binoculars if you're somewhere very dark, but it's not particularly bright. So it's it's quite bright in terms of comets because it's possible to see it with the naked eye. Many comets you can't see with the naked eye at all, but um, it's still on the limit of um, naked eye visibility. So you're going to have a much easier time finding it if you can get hold of a pair of binoculars. That is amazing. So if you're listening to this show uh, almost on, on the day that it's been released, uh, have a look for Taurus, find Mars, and you might find a small speck of green uh, speeding across space. Hayley Smith from the National Space Academy, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Before we finish up the show this week, let's take another very quick trip to Deep Space High. This is the smartest school in the solar system. It's very hard to get into. It's almost like getting a letter from Hogwarts. It really is tough. You have to be invited, and I'm inviting you there. Take a trip with me to Deep Space High the smartest school in the solar system. We'll learn from Professor Pulsar, who knows everything about the Earth and all of the planets that are around him. This week, we're learning about fluids, where we can find them, and what they do here on Earth. 
Deep Space High, Earthwatch, with support from the Royal Astronomical Society. On a lovely calm day like today, it's hard to think that the Earth is spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. You're right there, Sam. Planets are rarely calm. They're full of masses of movement, most of which you lot don't even notice. Have a really good look around. What movement can you see? Well, I can see the waves and feel the wind. They both move, don't they? That's right. Funnily enough, both water and wind are types of fluid. Hang on, that's got to be wrong. A fluid's like something you drink. Nope, a fluid is anything that flows when it's pushed. That means gases are fluids too. The Earth's atmosphere, oceans and core are fluids. You're breathing fluids as well as drinking them. The movement of fluids is responsible for all sorts of cool things on and around Earth. Wow, the fluid's getting quite strong now. Hey, you're not wrong. As well as movement up here, there's plenty going on under our feet. Just look at these tectonic plates. Well, they don't look like they're moving much. And they're not fluids, are they? No, they're eight massive chunks of rock that make up the Earth's surface. And yes, they are pretty slow. Only move about a centimetre a year. But that movement has created the continents we know today. So, what's making them move? Have a guess. I'll give you a clue. It's something to do with fluids. Um... The waves in the ocean. Very good, Sam. I'm impressed. There are stacks of theories about what causes the continental drift and tidal forces are certainly part of it. There's something else too. It's down in the mantle, the next layer on Earth. Sure is hot here. All this magma flowing around right under our feet. So does this make the continents move? Yeah, although exactly how is still something scientists argue about. And then right at the Earth's core, there's one more type of movement going on that has a very cool effect. Here in the core, the flow of liquid iron generates electric currents, which in turn creates magnetic fields. Like magnets. So magnets work because of the core spinning. Not just magnets like the ones on your fridge. The magnetic field around the Earth keeps us safe from some of the solar energy from the sun. Just goes to show it doesn't pay to stand still. It's seriously hot down here. Let's get moving ourselves. For once, I agree with you. Come on. Deep Space High. Earthwatch. With support from the Royal Astronomical Society. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash deepspacehigh. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If there is any science question that you want answered, get to funkidslive.com, press that record button on our page and let me know what it is. Remember to leave your name so I can say hello. You can star in the podcast. If you've enjoyed any of the shows that we've heard so far today, the small episodes, you can hear them on that website. They're on Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your shows and they're at funkidslive.com too. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen, all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. 
It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!